0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 230. Today's big Bible question, why can't we earn our way into heaven by our good works? Well, happy Thursday, friends, and I don't want to keep you in suspense for too long. The answer to our big Bible question is we can, in fact, earn our way into heaven with good works. More on that in a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about your car insurance. Life comes at you fast, and you never know when you're going to be riding down the road listening to a podcast, and the host implies that you can earn your salvation, which makes you immediately swerve off the road, wrecking your beautiful Honda Civic. I'm sorry. The insurance company I want to tell you about today is on your side. They will put you in their good hands, and you will save more than 15% on the rates of other insurers. Like a good neighbor. Now, like a really good neighbor. One that you actually talk to and, you know, that will watch your house when you're gone and take care of your dog, collect your mail, and maybe even text you when they see prowlers sniffing around. Not like the bad neighbors, you know, when you drive to your house and you see them outside and you don't want to talk to them. So you just kind of drive on past your house like, you know, you forgot something or whatever. Like the good neighbors, this company will be there for you. Okay, now you see why I'm in ministry and not jingle writing or insurance selling or whatever. If, you know, one of you giant insurance companies out there listening wants to support the pod, well, I'd be glad to bring you on board, but I think you're probably going to need to write your own ads, and I'm not going to hold my breath, so I guess we'd better start. Today's Bible readings include 1 Samuel chapter 3, Jeremiah 41, Psalm 17, and Romans 3. Our focus passage is in Romans 3, and it's all about how to get into heaven. Our big Bible question is a doozy. Can you earn your way into heaven? As near as I understand the question, the answer is yes. You can earn your way into heaven if, if, as Jesus says, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, right there in the Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the only problem with that is that your righteousness would have to far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, it would have to be perfect. Now, I suppose you could say that it's technically possible on paper at least, to never sin. In much the same way, it would be technically possible, at least on paper, to bowl a 300 game or a perfect game in bowling 300 times in a row, or to hit an 18 on 18 holes of golf 1,800 times in a row. Those things, as unlikely as they are, even if you're Kim Jong-un, are about 540,000 times more likely than somebody being able to be sinlessly perfect for even just one month, let alone a whole lifetime. So what would be involved in sinless perfection? Well, for one, you need to know there's at least 1,050 commandments in just the New Testament. There's a lot more than that in the Old Testament too. And if you're shooting for perfect, bad news, you gotta hit all the commandments, because, you know, you're going under the law. As a Christian, you're not under the law, but the guy who's shooting for perfect, yeah, I'm afraid you're under the law. The New Testament law and the Old Testament law, and that's a lot. That's like over 2,000 commands. Some of those commands, you know, you might be thinking, if you're considering giving this a shot, well, it's too late for you, but I don't know, maybe you're thinking about your kid giving it a shot. Some of those commands might be Let's just say relatively easy to keep. For instance, I've personally never murdered anybody, so I'm good there. Maybe. Well, unless I'm lying to you, which, you know, there would be two sins right off the bat, murder and lying. However, have I ever hated anybody who was a Christian? Well, First John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, I don't remember ever hating a Christian, but I guess it sort of depends on your definition of Christian. Has somebody ever cut me off in traffic that was a brother or sister, and I was, like, so mad at them? Uh Has somebody ever mistreated me, or I thought they mistreated me, and I was so mad at them, I just didn't like them? Well, there's kind of a fine line between dislike and hate, and gee whiz, I'd hate to... uh I'd hate to lose my salvation over that fine line, right? Well, the fact is, and this is just self-evident when you think about it for more than four seconds, everybody has sinned sometime in their life. It's true that some have sinned more than others, but that matters not at all when we're talking about perfection because here's the problem, only 100% sinless people who have never stumbled in deed or omitted deed or in thought, in the least, can get into perfect heaven. Are there any such people, Apostle Paul? Well, Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. That's not a very high number. Verse 11, this is Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Skip down to verse 23. I'm sure you've heard it before. For all, that means everybody, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you might think, wait a minute, that's not fair. But I'd counter with the fact that heaven is a perfect place and a perfect reward. Does anybody unperfect deserve the perfect? Does anybody unperfect deserve heaven? I think not. So be careful what you call fair and unfair. Imagine this, and this is going to be a clumsy illustration. I couldn't think of any better, and I only spent like 47 seconds trying to come up with it. So like a really long time. So imagine a multi-billionaire had a contest. The winner would receive his entire net worth, I don't know, $75 billion. We're talking about Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or something. All you have to do is to be the first person to hit a one-centimeter square bullseye from 100 yards away with a longbow and arrow 500 times in a row. Well, of course, such a contest wouldn't be fair in the least, but that reward, seventy. Five billion dollars is so amazing that anything short of a breathtaking feat shouldn't be allowed to win such a prize, should it? Well, how much more wonderful and amazing is heaven and perfect is heaven than 75 billion measly dollars? Well, let's ponder perfection and sin and heaven, and hear some better news than what I've given you so far today as we read Romans 3. And I think you'll find that there are zero insurance commercials in Romans chapter 3 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. So what advantage does the Jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then if some were unfaithful were their unfaithfulness nullifying God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, Let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written... There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues, vipers. Venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His restraint God passed over the sins previously committed— God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So lots of people have memorized Romans 3.23, and rightly so, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an excellent verse to present the good news, but the good news is not in Romans 3.23. Honestly, that's the bad news. The good news is in Romans 3.24 and preceding, and is really summed up quite well in verse 28. We conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified, what does that mean? Well, it means made just in the eyes of God and able to enter into heaven. It happens by faith faith, not by works of the law. Now this is monumental, and it's the very central truth of Christianity, that we don't please God and earn eternal life by works of the law, but by faith in the perfect work of the cross and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So let's close our thoughts today with some choice words from Spurgeon, pointing us to the beauty of justification and salvation by faith and not works. And Spurgeon says, We have not so clear a view of God as we could wish. We know not the heights and depths of his love, but we know for certain that he's too good to withdraw from a trembling soul the gift which it has been able to obtain. If we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, salvation is our present and eternal possession. If we cannot clasp the Lord in our hands like Simeon, if we dare not lean our heads upon his chest like John, Yet we can venture in the press behind him and touch the hem of his garment. We will be made whole. Courage, timid one. Thy faith has saved you. Go in peace. Being justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God. Conscience accuses us no longer. Judgment now decides for the sinner instead of against him. Memory looks back upon past sins with deep sorrow for the sin, but yet with no dread of any penalty to come. For Jesus has paid the debt of his people, including mine and yours, to the last jot and tittle and received the divine receipt. And unless God can be so unjust as to, ma- to demand double payment for one debt, No soul for whom Jesus died as a substitute can ever be cast into hell. It seems to be one of the very principles of our nature to believe that God is just. We feel that this very same belief that God is just becomes afterwards the pillar of our confidence in peace if God be just I, a sinner alone and without a substitute must be punished, but Jesus stands in my place and has been punished for me instead of me. And now if God is just, I, a sinner, standing in Christ can never be punished. God must change his nature, nature before one soul for whom Jesus was a substitute can ever be any possible, by any possibility suffer the lash or the punishment of the law. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph, who can lay anything to the charge against God's elect? Not God, for he's justified. Not Christ, for he has died and has risen again. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what he has done and in what he is now doing for me. On the lion of justice, the fair maid of hope rides like a queen." Good words, friend. So you can trust in Christ by faith, or you can try to do the equivalent of hitting 18 holes in one on one single course, 1,800 tries in a row. And even that won't be good enough to earn your way into heaven. So you may be a great golfer like Courtney, but you're never going to be good enough to earn your way. So look with faith towards Jesus, your perfection, your justification, your door. Into heaven by grace through faith. Let's keep reading today, and we will go to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. One day, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place. Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. I didn't, Eli replied, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. I didn't call you, my son, he replied, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy, and he told Samuel, Go and lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came, stood there, and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responded, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone who hears about it to shudder. On that day I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I am going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God and he has not stopped them. Therefore I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until the morning, then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, here I am, answered Samuel. What was the message he gave you? Eli asked. Don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and did not hide anything from him. Eli responded, He is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him, and he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh, because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And friends, I have to admit, I got so excited by reading that little Spurgeon clip that I forgot to do the voices for that chapter. And I'm sure some of you are rejoicing in that, and maybe a minority are sad but I apologize. Jeremiah chapter 41. Remember where we left off yesterday? Gedaliah was saying that Johanan was lying about Ishmael. Well, verse one, in the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, son of Elishamah, of the royal family, and one of the king's chief officers came with 10 men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mitzvah. They ate a meal together there in Mitzpah, but then Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword. He killed the one the king of Babylon had appointed in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mitzpah, as well as the Chaldean soldiers who were there. On the day after he had killed Gedaliah, when no one knew yet, Eighty men came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria who had shaved their beards, torn their clothes, and gashed themselves, and who were carrying grain and incense offerings to bring to the temple of the Lord. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, came out of Mizpah to meet him, them weeping as he came. When he encountered them, he said, Come to get Elias, son of Ahikam." But when they came into the city, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. However, there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Don't kill us, for we have hidden treasure in the field, wheat, barley, oil, and honey. So he stopped and did not kill them along with their companions. Now the cistern where Ishmael had thrown all the corpses of the men he had struck down was a large one that King Asa had made in the encounter with King Baasha of Israel. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people of Mizpah, including the daughters of the king, all those who remained in Mizpah, over whom Nebuzaradan, captain of the guards, had appointed Gadaliah son of Ahakam. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set off to cross over to the Ammonites. When Johanan son of Cariah, and all the commanders of the armies with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went out to fight with Ishmael son of Nethaniah. They found him by the Greek great pool in Gibeon. When all the people held by Ishmael saw Johanan son of Kariah and all the commanders of the army with him, they rejoiced. All the people whom Ishmael had taken captive from Mizpah turned around and rejoined Johanan son of Kariah. But Ishmael son of Nethaniah escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Yohanan son of Cariah and all the commanders of the armies with him that took then took from Mizpah all the remnant of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael son of Nethaniah after Get- Ishmael had killed Gedaliah son of Ahikam, men, soldiers, women, children, and court officials whom he brought back from Gibeon. They left stopping in Gareth-Chimham which is near Bethlehem in order to make their way into Egypt away from the Chaldeans, for they feared them, because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Psalm chapter 17, verse 1. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin concerning what people do. By the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring, their mouths speak arrogantly, they advance against me, now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion, eager to tear, like a young lion, lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord, confront him, bring him down, with your sword save me from the wicked, With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I wake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Amen. Bless the Lord. And friends, may the Lord bless you. Godspeed.